1: Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. The 20th century began with a revolutionary new approach to philosophy. The great arguments about the nature of reality and human experience were deemed empty and meaningless. A new philosophical broom in the form of analytic philosophy claimed to sweep away vacuous grand theories and replace them with hard logic and analysis as well as a close attention to the meaning of words. Yet a hundred years on, metaphysics is back. Theories of consciousness and the character of reality are once again the topic of debate. So should we welcome this return to stories about the ultimate character of the world? Or do they risk being empty, conveying little other than the prejudices and desires of their authors? Are grand metaphysical theories about the nature of reality and consciousness vital topics of debate? Or are they a set of fairy tales? Joining us to debate the future of metaphysics are legendary neurophilosophy pioneer Patricia Churchland, closure theorist Hilary Lawson, and analytic philosopher Galen Strawson. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate philosopher Maria Balaska.
2: Now let us meet our speakers. Galen Strossen is a British philosopher and literary critic specializing in the philosophy of mind and metaphysics. He has been a consultant editor for the Times Literary Supplement as well as a regular contributor to the Sunday Times, The Independent and The Guardian. Patricia Churchland is a distinguished founder of Neurophilosophy She argues that ideas like pure morality and reason will eventually be abandoned in favor of a purely scientific view of the human mind. And Hilary Lawson is a post-postmodern philosopher. He's a renowned critic of philosophical realism and he's best known for his work on reflexivity and his theory of closure. Now, each speaker has three minutes to put their case to our opening question, should we welcome the return? To metaphysics, Galen, would you like to Whoa. start? Um,
3: well, I didn't mean to be to be disruptive, but I don't think that the metaphysics has returned. That is, I don't think it ever went away. So, uh, example in, in 2015, I went to a conference called the Return of Consciousness, and the paper I gave there was called Consciousness Never Left, and I, could, you know, you could I could show by citing journals that the word consciousness was actually appearing more before the time when it was supposed to have come back with a boom. So I do feel the same about metaphysics. I mean, I've been doing philosophy since the 1970s. And um, as far as I can see, I've done nothing but metaphysics uh, with books on free will, causality, the nature of mind and consciousness, personal identity, and the self. So I don't know what's meant to have happened. Uh, I've got two hypotheses. One is that... I wouldn't put it at the beginning of the 20th century for a start. I do. I mean, I clearly, something quite big did happen in the 20s uh, in Vienna, the Vienna Circle. They renounced. They explicitly renounced all metaphysics, uh, and I suppose it's thought to have happened again a bit with the ordinary language philosophers in the 1950s. Um, but on the, uh, my father was one of them, P.F. Strawson. And I got a bit of a quote. He wrote, see if I can find it. He wrote a piece in the Times Literary Supplement in 1960, which was sort of meant to be the apogee of the ordinary language philosophy, basically saying, you know, that's over already. We're back to doing more substantive things. And ever since then, it's just, it's been a kind of orgy of metaphysics. Uh, um, there's an analytic metaphysics is a, is a name of a distinct subschool, And they have yearly meetings, which they call metaphysical mayhem in which they put forward the most insane views, but in my view. But anyway, so that's all I can say at this point.
2: Thank you, Galen. What about you, Patricia? What do you think? Should we welcome the return to metaphysics?
4: Well, I want to focus first on consciousness because that seems to be a place where we can get a bit of a foothold here. And I think there are kind of two approaches to the question of the nature and mechanisms supporting consciousness. One is to develop a great, grand, exotic theory, and the other is to take what we think we know about certain aspects of the phenomenon and try to make progress on a specific question. And many of the papers published now in neuroscience on consciousness do precisely that. So the way in really is to ask these kinds of questions. What's the difference in the brain between when you're in coma and not, when you're under anesthetic and not, when you're in an epileptic seizure and not? And try to establish what those differences might be and then build on that. So with regard, for example, to anesthesia, we really do have a very significant practical problem. And the practical problem is controlling excruciating pain. And um, in the old days, that is before the mid-19th century, people just had to have amputations, root canals, tumour extractions, and so forth without any help. Now, propofol, for example, is widely used in a surgical context. And So the question we can specifically ask is, what happens in the brain to uh, take us from being fully aware and conscious to being not conscious under propofol? And if you do it very, very slowly, now, you know, if, if you're going in for an amputation, they don't give you propofol slowly. If you do it very, very slowly, and document precisely what happens. The effects are quite interesting. The main effect at the systematic level is that we see a decrease in network connectivity. So that where that when you're fully awake and conscious, things have a pattern of connectivity throughout cortex and subcortical structures. That connectivity is disrupted under propofol and you have slower and lower and lower and lower levels of consciousness as a function of the propofol dopes. And you can track it then also when you come up. At the cellular level, what we know is that neurons in the brain under propofol lose 90% of their spiking capacity. So this is not an explanation of consciousness, but what it is, is an entry point that will allow us to go further and understand in more detail what the mechanisms might be. And I might just follow that up very quickly by um, saying...
2: Patricia, I'll just stop you and we can go back to the how okay. that relates to metaphysics, because I'd like to also hear Hilary's speech about whether we should welcome the return to metaphysics.
0: Thank you. So I think, I agree with the, quite a few things that Galen was saying. I, I, I think there was a time when uh, metaphysics was under attack from people who thought you couldn't make overall claims about the nature of the world um, and our relationship to it. Um, and I don't think that is a viable uh, position. I think that our, it's right thing for us to have a Uh, To try and describe our core overall beliefs uh, uh, within which our specific accounts uh, are placed. However, I don't think that our overall accounts will ever provide us with an accurate description of sort of what's out there. So while I would encourage the idea that we should put forward um, uh, an overall metaphysical account, I think we have to give up the idea that that metaphysical account might be true. And that's because I think that our theories and accounts of the world are tools to help us intervene. I don't think they're a description of some ultimate reality. Now, I put forward this uh, position in a non-realist theory some 20 years ago. Uh, The vocabulary I chose to promote at the time was the idea that we should think of the world as being open and we close it, and I was trying to show how we could uh, account for the accuracy of our theories, even though they are not descriptions of of, of an ultimate reality. And I would argue, that recent neuroscience, uh, with people like David Eagleman, have come to a similar conclusion that if you look at the brain processes, it begins to look as if that's what is going on in the brain. They are not descriptions of stuff out there, they are tools to help us uh, intervene. And so, in an overall way, yes, I think we should be building metaphysical stories about our overall uh, situation. In fact, I don't think we can avoid doing that, but I think we have to give up the idea that any one of them might, in fact, uncover the ultimate truth of how things are.
2: Thank you, Hilary. So just to get the debate going, uh, I think maybe we should try and get clear about our terms. And so the first theme uh, today is, what is metaphysics, and Galen? like you to start. (laughs) Yeah,
3: well, I've most of the time I just quote other people because nearly everything I can think of has been said better by somebody else. So I'm just going to read out Wilfred Sellers' famous quotation and I'll read it. The aim of philosophy is to understand how things in the broadest possible sense of the term hang together in the broadest possible sense of the term. Then he goes on, under things in the broadest possible sense, I include such radically different items as Not only cabbages and kings, but numbers and duties, possibilities and finger snaps, aesthetic experience and death. To achieve success in philosophy would be, to use a contemporary phrase, to know one's way around with respect to these things. In that reflective way, which means that no intellectual holds are barred. And that seems to me a pretty good general description of metaphysics. I I agree with everything Hillary said,
0: I said I'd put different spins on bits of it.
2: Good. Well, let's see. Hilary, what do you think? What is what's your working definition? Yeah.
0: So I, I think you know, we, can, we can have all sorts of different accounts of metaphysics. I don't think there's a true way of describing metaphysics. We can u- use it in different ways. Um, I, I would tend to go with an account of metaphysics, which is it's to do with our overall core framework by which we understand the world. And I think we can't avoid that. So there were people like Victor. Wittgenstein in the later form, who thought that you you should not provide any overall accounts of the world, and that we just had to catch on to what he was talking about. In fact, I think there was a certain bad faith in that. I think that in order to understand the later Wittgenstein, you have to impute to him an overall metaphysical story, namely something like we're wandering around in a language game. And and, uh, so I don't think we can avoid having an overall story about what we're up to. Um, So I think we need to be explicit about what our overall stories are, but we also need to recognize that no one of them is ever going to be able to describe what is uh, ultimately out there.
2: Thank you. Patricia, do you have a definition of metaphysics you are working with? No, I don't.
4: I mean, I'm very old fashioned. The scholars who assembled Aristotle's work um, had the book called Physics in which they put the material that was relevant to physics and then they had a bunch of stuff they didn't know what to do with and then they it didn't really fit in with the Nicomachean ethics, it didn't really fit into eth- uh, to, to physics so they called it the book after physics, metaphysics. Now <sighs> philosophers, especially in what we may call the TikTok era of metaphysics, have become really enamored of giving a very deep meaning to metaphysics. And quite honestly, I find it sort of a waste of time. I mean, there the physicists are looking for new forces, looking for new particles, and there's Hillary saying, well, you're never going to really tell the truth, you know. And they say, yeah, I know, but we're making progress. And there are the neuroscientists who are discovering things about consciousness. And there's Hillary saying, you're never really going to know what the nature of our purpose is. And they said, yeah, yeah, but I know these people are in pain and we're trying to help them. And so I'm fine with people who want to do these great grand things that Aristotle would not have called metaphysics, but they do. Uh, Go ahead, be my guest. Um, But I'm really interested in making actual progress.
0: I I think uh, Patricia also has a grand story. She uh, is making out that, oh, well, we just need to get down to the practical details. Uh, We can forget about these big grand pictures and so forth. But Patricia has a very big grand story It's the modernist story that science is understanding what's really going on, that we only have to apply observation and reason, and that we will gradually uncover the truth about the universe. And I am uh, alongside her in believing that we need to focus on observing how our models, or I would say closures about the world function. And we should use reason to identify which ones have weaknesses and so forth. But I do not think we should stick to the grand metaphysical story that they are uncovering some essential character of the word, or could in principle uncover it. This idea we're making I progress. Such towards. A
4: thing. I've been a fire of Bendian since nineteen sixty-five, for God's sake.
0: OK, very good. So, so because I understood you to be attacking the idea that um, there isn't an ultimate reality that we could describe. So if you're not attacking that, would you go along with the sort of position that I was proposing that there isn't a, an end point of our theories, that they're not descriptions?
4: Look, it's very difficult to make predictions in science. I have no idea. Whether science will ultimately uncover the ultimate reality. What we do try to do is to make progress in very specific ways, in very specific with very specific questions, always recognizing that there may be aspects of the story that are completely wrong. And the history of science, and I actually advert to this a lot in my work, so that's why I think it's kind of funny that you think I'm a, a, one of your knuckleheaded realists, that many of our seemingly obvious theories, like the elements are earth, air, fire, and water, uh, come to be challenged, come to be overturned. and. Of course, Newtonian mechanics, which people thought did characterize the ultimate nature of space and time, turned out to be modified, to be revised in favor of something that worked rather better. Are we now on to the ultimate nature of things? I mean, I wouldn't have thought that physics is unrevisable. Of course, certainly in the case of neuroscience, you know, these are pioneering dates. They're very, very big, major questions to which we have no answer. And so might the very framework of how we think about what the brain does, might that change? Of course. And there are many neuroscientists who actually do experiments as well as theorize, my colleague Terry Sanofsky, for example, um, who think about these large-scale questions about, for example, how the brain is very constructive. It's not a passive device. So, I mean, there's many things that I agree with you with, about what you say, Hilary. It's just that, you know, Hume said many of those things, but certainly Paul Feyerabend said many of those things. And it's nice to hear you repeat them, but they're not novel.
3: Hmm. It's crazy to think that science will ever uncover the ultimate reality. You know, there's a commonplace that it just can't do that as a matter of principle. So I got my quotation. So here's a whitehead, for example. Science ignores what anything is in itself. Its entities are merely considered in respect to their extrinsic reality. That is to say, in respect to their aspects to other things. Uh, And here's a great Eddington, great um, scientist of the, the guy who verified, the relativity theory by going to look at the, going somewhere and looking at the sun <laughs> under a total eclipse. He said, something is doing, something unknown is doing we don't know what. That is what our theory, physics, amounts to. It doesn't sound a particularly illuminating theory. I've read something like it elsewhere. The slithy toves, the gyre gyron gimbal in the wave. Some of you will know what that is. That's Lewis Carroll, right? Um, Again, if you want a concrete definition of matter, it's no use looking to physics. This is the point that Russell harped on for so long that physics only ever gives you the abstract structural description of the the whatever it is out there in itself. It's simply not its job and and not its capability to to get at its nature, except for one thing. There is one thing whose intrinsic nature we do know, which is consciousness. (laughs) Um, And that's just obvious when you think about
4: it. It's just beautiful.
2: Um, We will go back to consciousness, but I wonder whether this this disagreement that has come up has to do anything with the specific philosophical traditions you are working uh, from. And um, I wonder whether it's a question of analytic versus continental philosophy. So that takes me to theme two, which is was analytic philosophy right to have claimed to sweep away grand theories and replace them with hard logic and analysis. And I would like to hear from you first, um, Hilary.
0: Well, I think we did touch on on this a bit. I mean, there was undoubtedly a period, uh, typified in a popular way by A.J. and so forth, the idea that there was a whole lot of things that we couldn't refer to that were deemed to be metaphysics. In fact, I remember as a student being rather excited by this. It was a way of sweeping away all of this Victorian metaphysics nonsense. Um, hmm. and, and so there was a period where it did that. And I think, I think it is mistaken. I think it's uh, self-referentially uh, flawed. Uh, and and, uh, that we can't avoid having that overall frame. But just to come back to what Galen was saying, Galen was saying, well, we can be certain of of consciousness uh, uh, and so forth. Well, I I think that strangely, I I think Patricia and I were agreeing there where we we don't buy that. Uh, we don 't rely by a, a privileging of a story about consciousness or that we can say something ultimate about consciousness and that would be an example that i don 't think you can have an overall metaphysical story, be it a Hegelian version of of consciousness and spirit or a, or a more contemporary version i don 't think that you, that 's ever going to arrive at somehow saying how it 's ultimately out there and um, that would actually go for panpsychism as well, being a sort of contemporary version.
2: So what do, what do you three then disagree on? Is it, do, do you all well, agree that there is something out there that then um, uh, works as a kind of a testing for our theories? Patricia?
4: Well, if for example, you think merely about something like electricity, which it took uh, humans a long, long time to understand, there does seem to be something out there which we can investigate, which we can manipulate and harness and use in all kinds of ways. Um, And and the same I think is true with regard to consciousness. And that is that it's very important to be able to, to use something like Uh, an anesthetic in order to be able to to control pain. Um, But we'd also like to know things that are very deeply puzzling about consciousness. And that is why if you take ketamine, for example, recreationally, um, many people have what they call dissociative experiences. They'll look at their hands and they won't seem to be theirs. They will have thoughts and they seem to belong to somebody else. And yet, of course, they really are theirs in in some sense or other. And we're now beginning to understand what precisely changes in the brain when we take ketamine and how it produces those effects. And we can produce them electrically and then uh, get rid of them electrically. And it helps us, I think, understand something that is deeply problematic for many psychiatric patients who have really quite debilitating dissociative feelings. So might we be able to harness this in order to make a difference to people's lives? I think so. Does that mean we're getting to the ultimate nature of reality? Quite honestly, that never bothers me when I'm trying to go to sleep. I don't worry about that. I'm worrying about the data, and how the data fit together, and how we can
2: test it even better. Yalen, would you see that as a going towards a deeper reality, what uh, Patricia was talking about?
3: Uh, deeper reality, no. Uh, so we know the science, but we don't know, it's still a, we still think it a mystery. Everything that we learn in neurophysiology doesn't make us understand how the consciousness has the qualitative character that it has. But I wanted to say something to Hillary because um, when I said, we know what it is, I was not, it's, I could be perverse and say, you're the one linking knowledge and language, because I don't think we could describe it. So I don't think we could theorize it. I was just talking about knowledge by acquaintance, that I want, and you know, my slogan is, the having is the knowing. So I could come over and give you a kick right now, mm. and I, would you like, <laughs> and I would say that as I did it, you would have a certain experience, and you would know what it was like just by having it, and that's all I mean. So it's as it were non, non-linguistic, non-propositional knowledge. It means something very basic. It's in that sense that we know exactly what consciousness is. You all have a certain visual field before you right now, and you know it's qualitative character, but I don't think you could describe it. It would be incredibly hard, mm. but you just have it. Mm. So, okay. Actually, so, what is you okay? say
4: is really not true of the emotions, and it's not true of the-
3: I not mention um,
4: of of the various um, intestinal functions. That is that people often uh, fail to know that what they're feeling is fear or anger or frustration or joy. They don't actually recognize it. Ah, And uh, sometimes they come to recognize that that's what they feel. Sometimes people don't realize that they're hungry or that they're thirsty.
3: Yeah, that's compatible with what I'm saying.
4: Oh, sure, yeah. (laughs) Definitely. It,
3: the thing has the phenomenological
0: character it has, even if you misapply a word like fear to it. So so, uh, I think maybe we're getting a bit closer to what it is that might be an issue between us. So I, I, I'm not an idealist. I don't think it's just stuff going on in our heads and there's no stuff out there. In, uh, I mean, uh, I think there's a whole lot of stuff going on out there. But I, I don't. Uh, I don't think we can describe it. Nor, actually, when push comes to shove, do I think that we can say this, because the word "stuff" is part of our conceptual framework. Out there is part of our framework. All of that is not, I think, possible for us to engage in. So instead, I think we operate with what I call closures, but you could think of them as models, uh, and we use those models to intervene in the world. Sure. And I don't yeah. think there are true ones. So I'm. Uh, I think. Uh, I understand what Patricia is trying, I think, to say, but I wouldn't choose quite that vocabulary. I wouldn't say we are working out how consciousness works. We're getting to the bottom of it. I wouldn't choose that vocabulary. I would say our model of how we interpret the world, our understanding of brain processes, is improving. It's enabling us to intervene better. But it's not getting closer to some reality, and we should move away from that idea to thinking that our models are tools to intervene and we can refine them, we can make them better. But that doesn't mean to say they get any closer. They are just tools to make things happen.
2: But Hilary, isn't it that they work better because the thing that we, they are describing corresponds to it more? Isn't yes. it that we're kind of getting closer to the thing and th- that manifests itself to, with yes. the fact that they, the model works better? Well,
0: th- that, I understand, is the intuitive, commonsensical way of thinking about it. But I don't think that's the case. I don't think our words refer to things out there. Uh, Galien initially said, he described, uh, his choice of how to describe metaphysics was in terms of uh, how do things uh, operate and how do they relate to each other. Actually, I don't think there's any example of a thing. Uh, I, I, I would challenge the very notion of the, of the concept thing, that uh, we can't find an example of something that is just this thing. And, and that's because the thing is a closure. It's a way of closing all of the openness in the world into something in particular and uh, they don't exist. Uh, so, uh, in, in that sense, I, I don't think that our theories are proved right, as it were, because they approximate to what's really going on out there. I think what's going on is that they are, as I say, tools which we can refine the tool. We can make it better. We can have different ones. We can have radically different ones. But that's not the sort of thing they're doing.
3: Yeah. So, you're, you're a Quinean. Um, no I, uh, I think
4: that, that what he Wait, is hang is, on, can I just is say is I just accurate. want to give you a,
3: another quotation. Quine. Physical objects are posits comparable epistemologically to the gods of Homer.
0: You buy that, right? Quine? Yep. I always thought the Gavagai example, Quine's Gavagai example was very powerful. This was the notion that you could never say what a rabbit was and uh he I- imagined that the word gavagai referred to rabbit and he uh, made the case that uh, uh, you could never distinguish between referring to the rabbit and referring to a rabbit part. But anyway, uh, there are elements of things that I, I would concur yeah, but with. D- um, uh, of course, I have a slightly different version and I would encourage the sort of Hilary, vocabulary that I'd propose. I have a dental abscess right now
3: and I know what that pain is
0: as yeah. it is in itself. Yeah. Yes. So uh, I'm not uh, I'm not I'm not saying that your experience isn't something that is happening to you. I'm just it's saying real. It's concrete. That, it's, it's well, you d- you described it. You know, I have a dental abscess. Well, that's our model for understanding what it is that's going on in our in our teeth. It's a very powerful. No, I don't model. need the words. It's though. a very powerful model. I would certainly expect to go to a dentist and treat my pain in that way. And I would want to m- improve it. I'd want to encourage the science to get it better and make it more effective but I don't think that as a result of describing it we've somehow got to the bottom of it we've said okay we know what's going on because there are countless alternative ways that we could hold what's going on to us. Well
3: it doesn't feel like countless alternative ways. I mean I'm just referring to it and I think a dog could have one too and be in great pain and it's all real. And the dog, yeah, anyway.
2: I think we have moved from the question of metaphysics in general to the question of the metaphysics of experience because we've talked a lot about experience and pain. And um, I I want to go to theme three and perhaps uh, change it a bit towards in that direction. Theme three is will we ever uncover deep metaphysical truth about reality and perhaps we can turn this more into deep metaphysical truth about experience. And Patricia, I know earlier you said I don't really that's not my question. My question is, you know, how how can I help with that pain? What does it mean to affect perhaps the brain so that the, the, the pain goes away? But I'd like to put some more pressure on you in relation to whether that also means that there is something there, there is something on the level of the being of that of that thing that uh, you are um, examining, or 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 whether you, you don't you don't think so.
4: Well, obviously, some uh, theories are better than other theories and um, hypotheses get falsified all the time. And that's true, not just of neuroscience, but it's true of science in general. And um, what precisely makes one theory better than the other? Now, here, Hillary would say that I have to talk very, very puritanically, and I mustn't say certain things like we're getting by virtue of the theory being more predictive and explanatorily powerful, I mustn't say that we're getting closer to reality, so I won't say that. (laughs) But we do know that there are differences uh, in, in theories. And I mean, for example, with regard to panpsychism and the claim that protons and cow pies and fungus are conscious, it seems to me to be kind of outlandish. I mean, I don't care if people want to, to hold that, but there seems to be no evidence for it. There's nothing about a fungus that we know that shows that it's conscious under some conditions and not under others, and ditto for protons, and ditto for cowpies. Uh, so some theories are better than other theories. And even those may crash and burn as yet more data come to the fore. But I think Hillary is being a bit prissy and insisting that we be precisely careful to never say that we're getting closer to an adequate model. Uh, Okay, all right, give it a rest. Let us, you know, I say the sun sets, even though I know full well that the sun's not moving. Uh, and uh, as a very, you know, demanding semanticist, you might say, I cannot say that, otherwise I look like a dingbat. Well, okay, fine. Uh, but, but let's say that, that there is something about certain models that makes them more adequate than others. And if Hillary feels we'll never know what that is, fine, far be it for me to complain.
0: Okay, so... It's very, very interesting this, because I, I, I think that in some ways we might have a, a similar uh, response to panpsychism. So I share your feeling that it seems a bit outlandish to uh, claim that um, all elements of nature have consciousness, and it, you know, I take a sort of Occam's razor type mm. response. You know, this seems like a, a bit of a bit of a big move to make. So, in in the practice of this, uh, I think that we we might well share a lot in terms of which models we want to go with. And, but the reason why, and I also accept your criticism that in some sense I'm being unduly rigorous in saying, oh, we 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 really must be careful not to. Uh, talk about uh, uh, ultimate truth. The reason I guess I'm encouraged to do that is because I think that it does have profound consequences referring to uh, ultimate truth. Uh, I think it affects the way that we all interact with each other. We operate in a world in which an awfully large number of people in the world think they're right they think that there is a way of thinking about things, and they're right, and other people are wrong. And I think operating in a framework in which you give up this. Um, notion of uh, a, a, an ultimate reality actually gets you into an exciting space where you have the potential to develop your models, or I would say closures of the world. You have the potential to make them more powerful, but you are not in the situation of thinking that there is one right answer, and you are open to alternative ways of thinking, And but but I share with Patricia that there are some that I think, well, actually, that's a bit of a big move for me. I, I, I would, but Galen might be able to convince us, and that's why Patricia mentioned it, as Galen's a supporter of the panpsychist theory, as I understand it. He might he might say he's not, but, but he might be able to convince, convince me, actually, it really will work, and you really can and it's more powerful, and in which case, uh, I, I, will, I would go say, on, okay, I, I'll go Please with that. But that's us. the basis on which I would be operating. Okay,
3: well, very briefly. I mean, first thing is that Occam's razor cuts the other way. Um, panpsychism is, is the most parsimonious theory, not, the, not an excessive or exaggerated one, um, because the only thing we absolutely know for certain is the existence of qualitative consciousness. So we know that's one thing we absolutely know about mm-hmm. reality. If I'm afraid, of, I have to say about ultimate reality. Anyone who thinks that it's not all like that is positing um, some other stuff, which is non-conscious stuff, with no evidence for its existence. There's zero evidence for it. I'm not saying that panpsychism is testable. It isn't. It's not a scientific theory. It's just uh, it, What it is is technically it's an inference to the best explanation. That is, <laughs> what do we know for sure? What do we know for sure about reality? We know that there's consciousness. uh, Either it's it's there all the way down, or it's not. So let's suppose it's not. Let's suppose the stuff at the bottom is in no way non-conscious. Then you have to suppose that somehow consciousness emerges from this stuff that is in itself wholly and utterly non-conscious. You have to commit yourself to something called radical emergence. And that is a huge burden. That is a real no-no for any theory. You, uh, whereas, so that's the sense in which panpsychism is sim- a simple, more parsimonious, more elegant, simpler theory. And I don't, you know, I can't claim to believe it. I don't know that it's true, but I just think it's clearly the most hard-nosed theory out there. Mm.
2: You, you mentioned the difference between science and, um, and philosophy or dif- different theories. And I'm, I'm wondering whether one way to bring out what you three agree on or disagree on is, is whether you think that Um, philosophy is needed at all or we could do everything with science when it comes to understanding uh, what experience is or what pain is
3: I don't think what what do we need to understand I know what pain is I know what color experience is
2: you mean from a first person uh, yeah
3: but that's, that's the only way you ever have direct access to it anyway I don't think there's any problem of understanding. The problem only arises when you think of the physical stuff as being completely different and wonder how you get the consciousness from the stuff that's completely different. So and That's would, precisely what a panpsychist doesn't do.
2: Does that mean, then, that you would be okay with philosophy kind of taking a backseat and, and science... Well, no, no, look, there are some distinctive... Drivers.
3: Look, there are two... Here's a... Free will is a very... We're going to talk about that later. That is a very clear example of a purely a priori topic, which is... Um, can be dealt, can, science has nothing to say to it. And, and philosophy gives a very clear answer to it. Mm. So that's one such topic.
2: Yeah. Mm. Uh, Patricia, what, what, what are your thoughts about the, the, uh, whether there is a need for philosophy or whether you would be happy for uh, science to replace philosophy?
4: Well, it kind of depends on, on the philosopher. I mean, there are philosophers who are doing really interesting work. Um, and then, and and uh, so, so Do these philosophers really... look
2: like scientists.
4: <laughs> no, I mean, and you mischaracterized my my position by saying that I thought only logic and analysis would give you adequate concepts um, in the in the future. Uh, that's just not not something that I thought of. But the fact is, of course, that speculation is very useful in science, in all sciences. And people speculate in order to put together a, a hypothesis that they might go on to test. And although Galen thinks he knows everything there is to know about consciousness because he has it, he doesn't always have it. He doesn't have it when he's in deep sleep. Aren't you curious about what you, what's going on when you're in deep sleep? Yeah, I have. have you ever had a, a yeah, have you ever had an anesthetic? Yep. Have you ever even had a tooth pulled where you had a local anesthetic? Aren't you interested in what happens?
3: Yeah. Well, now it's
4: okay not to be curious about the natural world, but uh, I happen to be interested in those things. And uh, that doesn't mean that, that you know there's some that, that I have some sort of failure of personhood because not every metaphysical crackpot that comes down the pike is interesting to me.
0: I, I'm all in favor of the principles as of observation, empirical observation and reason, as I said, at the outset, and I 'd want us to uh, employ those and look at our models. But I don't think that science has uh, somehow stumbled upon the only way of discovering uh, better ways of intervening in the world, or indeed that um, it's ever, as I was saying, going to arrive at a correct one. So in the conversation that's going on here, I think the idea that, oh, we're getting either to the bottom of consciousness, or that uh, we can uh, have experiments which will, define the answers, I think we've got many, many different ways of talking about consciousness. If we look at the way that different cultures across history have talked about consciousness, they would have had countless different sorts of story. And the sorts of story that we operate are very valuable in some areas. So uh, our, our greater understanding of brain processes and how that might lead to consciousness may help us deal with certain conditions and so forth. But there are lots of other ways of holding the world. Which are uh, powerful in in their own right and will enable us to do things that the framework of contemporary science perhaps doesn't uh, enable us to do. And uh, I. But, but I'm not saying, oh, well, everything just goes. We'll just adopt any, any cranky theory that's out there and, and run with that. We have to apply the same principles of looking, well, let's hear the account. Let's understand what it would mean to hold the world like that. Let's challenge it and examine it and see, what, see what, uh, how it works and then improve it. But we can't certainly rely on on science as being in a modernist way somehow just going to uh, uh, be, you know, turn the science wheel and out comes uh, truth on the other side.
2: Thank you, Hilary. There's so much more to say, but I'd like to thank Hilary and and, um, I want to thank Patricia and I want to thank Galen for joining us today.
1: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.